I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Camilla Townsend, is a distinguished professor of history at Rutgers University whose scholarship focuses on indigenous peoples throughout the Americas and the relations between natives and newcomers. She is deeply immersed in the study of Nahuatl, the Aztec language, particularly the 16th and 17th century writings left to us by Native American historians. Through the historical annals they produced, we catch a glimpse of indigenous conceptualizations of history as they existed at first contact. In 2010, she was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in recognition of her work analyzing the Nahuatl historical annals from the 16th and 17th centuries written by the Nahuas or Aztecs in their own language, using the Latin alphabet taught to them by Spanish friars for the purpose of reading the Bible to more easily convert them to Christianity. Her 2019 book, Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs, won the 2020 Kundal History Prize. So Camilla, welcome to Delving In. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. So how did someone who grew up in New York and whose higher education was in the Northeast became interested in Mesoamerican history and how on earth did you learn Nahuatl? That's a great question. Why, you know, why do we do what we do? Why are we interested in what we're interested in? Right? I was not raised uh, by a Native American family. I am not Native American. Uh, I would say that growing up in New York City exposed me to multiple worlds of people. And one of my favorite places to go was actually the Hyde Foundation, which is now uh, the collection that comprises the the National Museum of the American Indian, part of the Smithsonian. But at that time, it was in an out-of-the-way building in New York City, and I loved to wander the halls there. So I suppose some seeds were planted. Um, but I had no thought of, of, quote, studying Native American history. I went off and uh, went to work in Nicaragua, which at that time was a revolutionary country under the governance of the Sandinistas. And I taught seventh grade. I suppose uh, my students probably taught me more than I taught them. But I learned a great deal about Latin America, about the long sweep of indigenous history. And when I came back, I decided to get a PhD in history. And I was at that time studying comparative economic history, but I remained interested in American Indian issues. I was teaching at Colgate University when a memo came across my desk. Uh, you and I are old enough to remember the days of memos, right before information passed on the internet. And this memo said that there was going to be a Nahuatl or Aztec language course that summer at Yale. So I went off to, to take this class because I was working on a book about Malinche, the woman who helped Hernando Cortez, who translated for him, and she was a, a Nahuatl speaker. So I went off to take this course even though she had not written anything. And I, I guess I imagined that the language would probably be too hard for me to learn. I suppose I was harboring implicitly and unconsciously some racism. I should have known that if I'm good at languages, there would be no reason that this language would be too hard to learn. I, was, I think I was deeply, on some deep level, assuming that these people were profoundly different from the rest of us. But lo and behold, I found that their language is much like other human languages, and I could study it and learn it, and that I was actually good at it. Um, and that really changed my direction. I, I dropped comparative economic history and began to study Nahuatl almost full time. That was in the late 90s. So it's been a long time now. I've gotten a lot better at reading classical Nahuatl than I was at first. I'm still not a very good speaker, 
but not at all. But I am a very good reader of the old sources. And uh, it has been a real joy because I think we need more work like this since the, the Native Americans, the, the Aztecs did write a great deal in their own language. I'm glad that I made this circuitous trip uh, to, to learn uh, to read those sources because I, I think it's work worth doing. Yeah, and you mentioned in your book that there are something like a million Nahuatl speakers left. So that's that's quite a large community of speakers compared to other native languages, many of which are disappearing. That's exactly right. I'm sorry to say that even Nahuatl is somewhat under threat, not nearly as much as many other indigenous languages, not with numbers like that, but there used to be two million speakers. And we've had to sort of regularly adjust our, our guess, our estimates downwards as today's young people find, um, especially as they spend most of their time on the internet, that they'd rather study Spanish and English. So I, I regret to say that I'm not convinced that those that, that number, about a million speakers, will hold for very much longer. But it sure is there, an active part of Mexican life right now. Thank goodness. Okay. And, and I assume you're fluent in Spanish as well. Most of the Nahuatl speakers are fluent in Spanish as well. I, I, no, and you are, and you are. Oh, me? Oh, yes. My Spanish is, is terrific, spoken and, and, and read, because I've had plenty of chances to speak it. Uh, the problem with studying classical Nahuatl is that one has very few chances to speak anything even remotely similar. Even in the villages where Nahuatl is still spoken, it's substantially different from the classical or 16th century form that I read. So is it like reading uh, Chaucer? You know, that's not far off. I used to use the example Shakespearean English versus modern English, but I actually think classical Nahuatl and modern Nahuatl are a little further apart than that. So maybe Chaucer to modern English is a great, uh, a great comparison. So yes, one can muddle through, but not very easily. Yeah, and as you explore in your book, the Mesoamerica was a pre-literate civilization in that the um, pre-conquest history was recorded in pictographic language rather than phonetic language and also through a rich oral tradition. And I, I was wondering how that worked, the, the oral tradition, how that worked in pre-colonial times and, and what was the, what are the special challenges to preserve all that afterwards? Because you know, with, with the, the Franciscan friars and so on, uh, it taught uh, the natives how to use a phonetic means to record their language, but that's very different from an oral tradition. Exactly. And there was a period when scholars were actually arguing that we perhaps shouldn't even bother to study these texts because they were crystallized, frozen forms of the old utterances rather than the flexible, vibrant, compelling oral performances that would have been experienced at that time. Um, but many of us have come to think that that's a lot of hooey. Uh, I mean, there's some truth to it, but it, it should not lead to the conclusion that we therefore shouldn't study what we do have. Because they wrote down, that is the Nawas in the 16th century wrote down many different versions of many different historical performances. Uh, they had long had the tradition of the shupawali, the, the year count or the yearly account in which first one person, then another person would step forward and add their, their lineages or their clan's version of a certain event, a great war, what have you. By the end of the performance, multiple people would have spoken and there would be a, a sense of each part of the polity or each part of the society having contributed to the vision of the truth. Well, after the Spanish friars taught the people the Roman alphabet, many of their students, they had many indigenous students, went home and said to their parents or their grandparents, 
once in a while they'd say, pray me the prayer, but usually they would say, tell me the story or give me the history. It was a little safer to do that because then they weren't touching on the old gods, which were forbidden under the Christians. So it was quite safe to say, tell me the history. And these elders would begin to recite these complex histories that they were used to reciting. And the young, mostly guys, they were mostly young men, would transcribe the sound. And they did this on multiple occasions. So it isn't really true that we have only a tiny handful of frozen performances. We have quite a bit. Of course, it would be richer if there had been a tape recorder in the 16th century and we really had access to the full performances, but we don't. But we can get a great deal out of these, these moments, really, that they took the evenings when they took the time to write this stuff down. Uh, but relatively little has been done with it until uh, the last couple of decades because they didn't write them for you and me. They didn't write them even for the Spanish friars. They wrote down what the elders said, which and they were performing or reciting according to the traditions of their people. They didn't explain things that they didn't think needed to be explained. And uh, they would, as I said, have many different people reciting in one evening. When the young people were transcribing it, they didn't say uncle so-and-so says this and grandpa says this. They just kept writing, 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 writing every word. They had no punctuation, just write, 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 no divisions. So we have to figure out, it took us a long time to figure out, oh, different speakers are covering the same war from different perspectives. There's a lot of work that goes into figuring out um, sort of what's in these sources. And I think that's why not a lot has been done until recently. Historians like others tend to get to the harder work when the easier work has been done. We're, we're all the same. We'd rather, we'd rather work with easier sources. Yeah, you have to be extremely patient to tease all that out. You do, you do. It takes it takes patience. That is correct. You know, it reminds me a little bit about the you know the the Hebrew uh, Bible is you know written without without punctuation, without vowels, and and often and and, and often and often without uh, identifying the speaker, like the the prophets, for instance. The, the it's the voice of God, and then the voice of the prophet, and the voice of the people. I mean, it's, you just have to sort of figure it out from context. Very similar. And others have told me this. I have never studied the, the, the ancient Hebrew text. I don't have any Hebrew. But you are, I'm sure that you are right, because other scholars have said to me that it is like that. I was wondering what you thought of this as an analogy, that the pictographs would be a kind of prior version of PowerPoint. It was useful as a kind of memory aid as you're telling your story. That is a perfect analogy. I may steal that from you if you don't mind, because there's been some bit of a sort of tussling between um, historians and art historians. Art historians study the, the glyphs, and m most of them do not study Nahuatl. One or two of them have, but mostly they study the glyphs, and they have made the argument that these are the real texts. You know, here are the painted histories. We have it right here. The problem is they were designed to elicit speech, so they give rather limited information. We really have needed to look at these full recitations, but they do have their uses, and I have struggled to explain how they are and are not useful. I think your PowerPoint analogy is perfect, right? If you've heard the talk and then you have the scholar's PowerPoint, it's very useful. Um, but if you haven't heard the talk, then just looking at the PowerPoint may not help. Well, or if you're the, you're the performer, it's really helpful. Right, right. Oh, absolutely. And that was the point of them, right? They, they were designed in the same way PowerPoints are, right? I'm, I'm thinking like the scholar studying them, but right. So before we go any further, I just wanted to understand the terms. So Nahuatl is the, is the uh, language, Nahuatl is the people, and Aztec, I guess, is a European term for the Mexica people when Mexica spelled M like Mexica. 
that's pronounced Mexica. Why all these different terms and what, where did they come from? You have got it down. Uh, absolutely. So the people we are talking about that most people think of when they say Aztecs called themselves the Mexica. The language they spoke, as you said, was Nahuatl, and there were many other Nahuatl speakers. The Mexica were only one group of many dozens who spoke Nahuatl. And all together, all those speakers are called the Nahuas, and they did use that word. Well, the problem is that in the 18th and 19th centuries, when scholars began in a serious way um, to study these people, they had a lot of trouble with these terms. There were the Mexica, there were the Tlatelolca, there were the Tlaxcalteca, there were the Choluteca. Um, they couldn't keep track of it all, the, the, the Mexica and their neighbors. And they really wanted a word that would describe the culture complex as a whole throughout Central America that we, most of us, are really thinking of when we think about that time period and that place. Well, in a couple of texts, the Mexica referred to their ancestors as the Azteca. Their ancestors had come from a place called Aztlan. We don't know exactly where that was, but somewhere in the southwestern United States. Could have been very near where you are, actually. So Azteca just meant the people of Aztlan. So they were just describing their ancestors using a word that meant the people of of Aztlan. But the scholars saw this word Azteca in these two or three different sources. It was not much used. It was literally used, I think, once in three different sources, once each in three sources. And they thought this is perfect. And scholars began to use it. And they had been, as I said, really in need of a term that would just be useful for that whole culture that existed in Central America that was dominated by the people in what is now Mexico City. Uh, so it really caught on like fire, so to speak. And it has become ubiquitous in everything written about Mesoamerica from that time period. It's the term that school children learn. And so, yes, I do use it, partly for the same reasons they did. That is, it's a little bit useful. But the other reason is that it helps in communication. I find when I say to readers or an audience that I'm speaking to, I'm going to talk about the Mexica, even if I show a map and explain why that is, everybody's struggling to remember that. They're wondering why I'm not pronouncing it Mexico. Why don't I say Aztec? So I just say Aztec. Um, I find that it works. It's effective. Okay, so it sounds like Aztec is a word in, from the indigenous culture. It's not an imposed word? or They would never have called themselves that, though. They used this word a tiny handful of times to refer to these ancestors from the place called Aztlan, probably actually near Albuquerque. <laughs> so it would, they would never have said, I am an Aztec, or this is the Aztec culture looking around. They would have said Mexica. So it's a little, a little bit of both, I guess. It's a little bit of both, right, right. Yeah, I, I hadn't been aware before before reading your book that where I live in Las Cruces, New Mexico, was was part of Mesoamerica culturally and also in terms of uh, trade. You know that, the, and even for and even for the north, the turquoise and so on. So that's really interesting. I always thought that the you know we were in Apache territory and that was different. And and you you were in the most recent layer of history, right? But um, it, and in fact. Say the, especially like the Navajo, the Hopi, their ancestors are the same people as the Aztec ancestors. It was really a, an impressively large and populous empire. Right. You know, very, very different from the tribes of North America, which I think were much more sparse. I mean, the, so the, the Aztec or Mexica empire was really one of the most advanced and developed and impressive in the whole hemisphere. It's because of farming. That is, wherever farming appears, people gradually, eventually give up 
being permanent hunter-gatherers and then their population grows and then because they're sedentary they have time and energy to invent various things like writing uh, so it's the same in the old world you can see the process happening in the ancient southwest asia too um, and you see it among the the ancient aztecs or, or incas or the, their forebears um, so it, at, likewise in north america you think of say cahokia or the ancient Puebloans, to bring it closer to home for you, these people who did begin to build buildings, etc., they were farmers. You have to be farming for a while before you begin to do things like that. Right, and you mentioned in your book that the maybe the technological disadvantages were partly attributed to the number of centuries as farmers, that in, in, the, in the new world, it was only 3,000 years, whereas in the old world, it was 10,000 years. Exactly, exactly. So no one is arguing that if these people are farmers uh, and their neighbors are not farmers, that the farmers are always going to defeat the non-farmers. In fact, on the contrary, because the non-farmers can come, run, grab the stuff and run off into the night because they're non-sedentary and they can just disappear into the hills. But if you have a difference of thousands of years between those who are farmers and those who are non-farmers, then it's going to make a big difference in terms of who wins the war. They'll have the microbes that come from being farmers because we get germs, new germs from animals as we now know, right? I mean, from we got this COVID from the bats. Okay? So the, the new germs, the menu of, of microbes, uh, viruses comes from constant interaction with animals. Uh, you'll have more people because more people will survive if you have stored food uh, because farming land supports more people than hunting land. And you'll have all the inventions that go with being sedentary. So the result is when you have um, people who've been farming for, for many, many centuries longer than the people around them um, or the people that they're in conflict with, they will win. I just want to read something from, from your book and, and then we'll take just a slight break uh, so it'll give you a chance to think about it. So I think it might be a nice segue to talk about the next section. So you write, uh, libraries are generally thought to be very quiet places, whether they shelter stacks of rare leather-bound books or rows of computers. Another way to think of a library, however, is a world of frozen voices captured and rendered accessible forever by one of the most powerful human developments of all time, the act of writing. From that perspective, a library suddenly becomes a very noisy place. In theory, it contains fragments of all the conversations the world has ever known. In reality, some conversations are almost impossible to hear. Even someone who is desperately trying to distinguish what an Aztec princess is shouting, for instance, will generally have a hard time of it. She appears atop the pyramid, facing brutal sacrifice, and she usually remains silent. The voice overlaying the scene is that of a Spaniard, telling us what he is sure the girl must have thought and believed. Instead of her words, we hear those of the friars and conquistadors whose writings line the shelves of the library. So when we come back from the break, just uh, you know, let, let's hear about that, that woman atop the pyramid, because I think you do a wonderful, really splendid job of, of uh, bringing that whole story to, to life. So let's hear about that princess atop the pyramid. I mean, it's, it's toward the beginning of your book, and it's really vivid and, I think, suitably evokes the feelings of horror and terror, which is not the only place in the book that does that. <laughs> yes, no, I'm glad you brought that instance up, um, because that moment is a perfect example of the kind of phenomenon that caused me to believe that this book needed to be written, even though dozens probably hundreds of books altogether have been written about the Aztecs. Beginning in the 16th century, people writing about the Aztecs largely relied on Spanish sources. And that has continued 
pretty much up to the present day, we've added in archaeological sources, but they come from the pyramid sites. Mostly uh, archaeologists have dug out the great temple sacrifice religious centers. So we were left with these horrible descriptions by Spaniards and these horrible archaeological sites, uh, which tell us that the Aztecs spent a lot of their time sacrificing other people and that they did this because they were deeply convinced, this is the argument of the Spaniards, um, that if they didn't do that, the world would end, that their gods uh, would be angry and everything would fall apart. Those of few of us who, or few scholars, I guess I should say, who, who did kind of begin to look at texts written by Nawaz for Nawaz, sometimes experienced a bit of cognitive dissonance because that's not exactly what they said. But for years, we tried to kind of ram a square peg into a round hole and conclude what we were supposed to conclude. So to take this example, uh, in this ancient Nahuatl text that was passed down verbally and then got written down in the 1500s, you have Shieldflower Maiden, who was one of the Aztecs' forebears, and she was being sacrificed by their enemies. Well, she did not talk at all in what they wrote down about the need to die in order to keep the world going, nor uh, did she talk about the other aspect that was sometimes brought up, that is that the people were trying to sort of terrorize other people and to you know, beat them into submission. What she gave voice to was more along the lines of this, come on, bring it on, I am braver than you boys, kill me, why haven't you killed me yet? It's because you are afraid. I am not afraid to go to my gods because I and all the people who descend from me are going to make mincemeat of you. Well, this really had nothing to do with keeping the universe going and had nothing to do with brutalizing others. And I was puzzled for a long time. And then one day, as I said in that book, I kind of allowed all the things that I had actually read in these stories that they wrote in their own language for each other to gel in my mind. And it became clear to me that at least when the practice started for the Aztecs, and they, um, it was because they were other people's prisoners of war and they were trying to show their courage in accepting it. They then tried, began to try to turn the tables on their enemies. This girl shouting this belligerently was quite right that it, the next generation would in fact be a little more powerful and eventually they would be sacrificing others. And at that point, they would be trying to show their, their neighbors we're strong too, so you must stop attacking us. Okay? Um, but it had nothing to do at that time, at that point in their history, with what has been asserted, that they believed that they must do this or the whole world would fall apart. So you learn something about their, their use of human sacrifice, their participation in human sacrifice. You learn something about what they were afraid of, what they were proud of. If you really stop and listen to what they said themselves and what they wrote themselves, instead of just reading what the friars said, about what they had done. The friars were motivated to portray them as very bloodthirsty, even primitive, horrific savages, because then it was a good and generous act on the Spaniards' part to destroy them. Saving their souls, yeah. Yeah, so it, it strikes me that the story about Shieldflower Maiden uh, strikes me as a kind of foundation story for the Mexico or Aztecs in the sense that it was her valor and her pride that somehow cosmically allowed for the Mexica to eventually become the dominant tribe in, in the whole region. 
I think you're right. They thought of themselves as the much put upon, much beaten up last group to arrive in the area. And they were, in fact, the last major group of migrants to arrive. And they therefore had a hard time of it at first, hard time finding some land to farm and were constantly attacked. Uh, they did not think of themselves as the aggressors, although, of course, they did become the aggressors by the end of their history. They had learned to do unto others, just had been done unto them um, with a vengeance. And I think actually got carried away. I, the, the comparison I use when I'm teaching is to talk about the period of the dirty wars um, in the 1970s and 80s. Our State Department, I think we all have to admit, did horrible things in Latin America, you know, paid for and, and prompted and supported terrible military governments uh, in order for U.S. power to uh, sort of remain at its apex for a while. And likewise, I would admit that by after about 100 years, by the early 1300s, the Aztecs were um, beginning to experiment with using human sacrifice as a terror tactic. Uh, so the myth has a kernel of truth. They did eventually get there. Yeah, I mean, more, more than a kernel. And, and also the, the idea that sacrifices somehow helps the universe to exist. I mean, you, you, the title of, of your book, The Fifth Son, isn't that an, an allusion to the foundation story of Nana Watson and his willingness to sacrifice himself in order for there to be a, a, a new, a fifth version of of existence. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Right. Okay. Um, although the key difference there is that in their ancient myth, this brave human sacrifices himself uh, for the sake of futurity, if you will. That, that is. Well, well they uh, were looking for a volunteer, right? They were looking for a volunteer and find. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, looking for a volunteer to jump into a fire. Terrifying. Yes. This was not something people were going to volunteer to do. Right. And they did not. The gods had to say, we think you should do it. And then he said, well, if you think I'm brave enough, I guess I'll try to be. In fact, the one who had, with a certain braggadocia, stepped forward and said he would do it, found he was unable uh, to sacrifice himself. When it came to it, he couldn't jump into the fire. Um, but this ordinary guy did. Um, and so he, like Chimala Shochin, you're absolutely right to bring them both up. So he, like Shieldflower Maiden, you're right to bring them both up. They are emblematic of the, the Aztec sense of themselves as people who are in a tough spot that they don't want to be in, but they have to make the best of it. And they bravely do what must be done. Right. So, so was that a, a, a kind of a development in, in the history of, of human sacrifice that it, it became part of the theology in a sense? Whereas before it was some, I mean, it seemed like there's multiple uses for human sacrifice, unfortunately. And, and, I, and I do want to just sort of say just, uh, you know, for the record, so to speak, that the Spaniards were unbelievably cruel themselves. So it, it's, it's sort of like the tea kettle calling the, the, the pot black. I mean, it just... <laughs> right. No, there's no question that there was a long history of, of violence, including state violence in Europe as well. It is true that throughout the Americas, occasional human sacrifice was practiced at the end of battles. And there is some reason to think that this was true in Europe and Asia as well. We just don't have access to that world because uh, ancient Europe and Asia got covered over by more recent historical eras. Whereas the, in the Americas, what was going on in the 1500s is what had been going on for quite some time because they largely had not become farmers. So we're looking at a, a, a sort of much more ancient world. And there they were doing, again, what is suspected all humans did, that is sacrificing enemy warriors at the end of battles. 
often it was not intended to humiliate them, but to allow them to have one last chance to achieve valor, to achieve greatness. It was usually the young male warriors, only very rarely uh, women or children. That was very unusual and only happened in bizarre circumstances. So you're saying it was done out of respect? <laughs> in a way, but it was also a way of showing who won. So it was done out of respect, but it was also a marker that our gods beat your gods. But we will allow you one last chance to be brave. And it was a public spectacle, I would imagine, and right? It was a public spectacle, right. Uh, so nobody wanted this. I'm not saying anyone enjoyed it, but everybody, I mean, almost all uh, tribal entities participated. And again, probably around the world, most ancient humans did. In any event, this was very common all over the place. And uh, Shield Flower Maiden experienced this when her people first arrived in, um, in central Mexico. And we get this story that was told for generations. But over time, as the Aztecs gradually sort of uh, attained the right to be there and then uh, became even more powerful and eventually ruled all of central Mexico and to some extent the rest uh, all the way down to Central America, they needed to find a way to protect that power. Because when you become that powerful, other people resent you. You know, when you're demanding tribute and telling others what to do, you're going to be facing uh, rebellion or insolence all the time. Uh, it's a bit like the children's game, King of the Mountain. You know, you want to be King of the Mountain, but at some point you're going to be thrown off onto the floor and the principal's going to come in and say, what happened here? You become the target. You become a target, right. So what the Aztecs did um, was begin to wield human sacrifice like a weapon. Um, they began to say, look, you join our empire, you, this group on the outskirts. And, and if you do, fine, we'll be best buddies. If you refuse, we're going to fight you. And when we win, you are going to be forced to give us a sacrifice, you know, a hundred sacrifice, I'm making up the number, you say a hundred sacrifice victims. It began to be a terror tactic. Uh, they actually talked about this. That is, I'm not just deducing it. Partly I'm deducing it, but there are instances in these Nahuatl texts where they actually refer to this, uh, their growing use of this as a political tool, a terror tactic. So they became the villains, one could argue, that they have been famous for being. But I would hasten to add that this was just the ruling clique, if you will, or the ruling set of families, the governing class. The songs that were written at that time are all about the tragedy of death and the beauty of life. So I guess I wouldn't want the world's people today to decide that they know everything they need to know about, say, Americans, merely by studying the State Department and the CIA in the 1960s and 70s. We're not all that evil all the time. Right. I think, you know, historians of whatever culture are often talking about war and conquest and violence. I mean, that seems to be what humans are most fascinated by, even, even though that's not really part of everyday life for most people, if, if you're unlucky, it is. That for, for the Aztecs, uh, you know, aside from the, if you put the violence and power struggles aside, there was a normal urban life, a huge outdoor market, magnificent architecture, pageantry, plays, spectator sports. I mean, it really sounds in some ways not that different from life here. And yet that's not the kind of thing that's often written about. And instead, and I can sort of sum, uh, sum it up in four words, horror and terror, courage and vision. You know, horror and terror, you know, the, of, of war and sacrifice and, and, and cruelty and power struggles, and then, but also courage and vision of the, the people who prevail and then, you know, create a society, not just uh, of domination, but with richness to it. 
Right, right. And it's it's hard to keep track of both at the same time because both were part of their lives. But but right, we make a mistake to assume that all they ever did is think about, dream about, and enact sacrifice. The priests lived like that, but not everybody. And you also talk about some of the key elements, and this is maybe partly has to do with the, the power struggles, but the the practice of polygamy of multiple wives and that that was part of the way i guess alliances got made but also sowed the seeds of terrible rivalries because you know depending on the status of the mother and you know which which who gets to rule and who's in line to rule and all that yeah their politics were extremely complex more than we have realized until recently because of this question of polygamy i mean it works very well for well for men in many ways we don't have to get into the in terms of sexual joy uh, for the men, but um, it works very well politically in that they always have plenty of sons. Some can die of disease or die in war, and they will still have someone else to inherit the line. And there are many kings in European history, as we both know, who ruled the day that the Christians said they could only have one wife um, and that they couldn't have legitimate children in some other way. So it was very effective. But there was an embedded problem, which is that when you have dozens of wives, you have hundreds of children. And and that is what happened to the to the leading kings. And they did form factions and they did often end up fighting each other. In fact, as I read through these Nahuatl annals or histories, it became clear to me that most of what we have interpreted as wars between two city states, they were actually civil wars. That is, there would be a rupture within a city state between the different bands of brothers, in effect, by different mothers, and then they would go and seek allies from other city-states, usually the city-state where their mom was from, and bring those people in. So what looks to modernists who don't know much about their world as a time when this city-state attacked that city-state is actually being motivated by crises from within. One thing the Aztecs got right, they were very clever about this, the, the ruling family, is they learned to to do what I call braiding the lines together through constant intermarriage. Um, and a, a man would agree, almost every ruling male agreed that his own son would not rule. Rather, his son would marry a girl from one of the other competing lineages and their son together, his grandson, would rule. So that in, indirectly his line was continued, but it braided in the other, you know, another lineage. And then the next lineage would do that with their rival lineages. And they were better at this apparently than other city-states were. So it seems to have helped them a great deal in terms of staying on, staying on top of the desk if we're using the king of the mountain analogy. They were able to keep a certain degree of stability right, right. that way, but it was very tr- tricky stuff. But it was tricky stuff. And, and, they, and there were even there constant arguments. It's almost funny. Some of the songs are one lineage, the people of one lineage mocking the sons of another lineage you know, by another woman, etc. Right, but it does, it does sound like there was there was a quite a bit of conflict. I know that there was plenty of conflict in, in Europe for many many centuries as well. So it's nothing unusual there. Being the king of the hill and being the one demanding tribute from everybody else, and, and you know, in a previous interview that that I did with Stefan Rinka in uh, January sixteenth of this year, you know, he talked about the Spaniards. Part of the reason they were able to win, I mean, of course, a big one was the smallpox. But the other reason is that they were able to make alliances with surrounding peoples that were angry with the Aztecs, you know, and so they, they had plenty of fighters to add to their numbers. 
Right. And even with lineages within city-states uh, that were ranged against them. So, so Texcoco was fighting them, for instance, but there was a family line by one, you know, a group of sons by one of the mothers who were only too happy to join the Spaniards, hoping that, that they would be able to get back into power. Could we talk a, a bit about gender roles? What were the gender roles like in Aztec culture? Sure. It's very different from what I find young people imagine. On one level, they were very rigid. Women had to do what women had to do. Men had to do what men had to do. There was no room to say, for instance, mom, I'm not the marrying kind. Everybody had to get married. Everyone had to do what the society had ordained. But within that, there was a great deal of personal freedom. So for example, there was plenty of homosexual sex. Uh, there was no sense that you could only have heterosexual sex. You had to marry somebody from the opposite sex and, uh, and do your best to you know, keep the family line going. But there was no sense that there was only one way to be moral. Uh, you had to do your best to support your family, but you could define that in very different ways. Uh, and as a result, for instance, maybe someone had to be um, a goldsmith because his family had always been goldsmiths, but he could develop uh, something akin to the lost wax method that nobody else had ever thought to do and gain a lot of uh, credit and, and glory for that. You had to um, sing about your people's victories if you were one of the family singers, but maybe you found it particularly sad. So you could introduce new songs about the sadness associated with death. So I would say that in many respects, gender roles were both more fixed and more flexible than we find in many other places. I think this is actually to some extent true of Native American cultures in general. That is, no one was saying, it's a myth that girls were told you can say, become a, a, a man and a very few uh, girls ever got to do that. There were in certain cultures and possibly amongst the Aztecs, um, the, the famous Burdash, that is men who lived as women, but that was very rare. Mostly that was not allowed. But as I said, you know, once you've fulfilled your duty to society, you can go ahead and do whatever you want to do. Um, and as long as you don't threaten your the social role, the family's uh, overall welfare, that's fine with everybody. So for instance, girls were lectured to in school that they should get used to not having any sleep because for 20 years, they're going to be pregnant, nursing babies, up early to get the fire going. So there, there's, there were lines in these speeches, get used to it, the night is your friend, sleep is not your friend, you're not going, you're going to be tired, accept it. Okay. On the other hand, the girls were allowed to sit in the courtyard for much of many days while their poor guys were off fighting. Okay. Uh, the girls were allowed to sit in the courtyard and weave and sew and sing and talk. Okay. Um, and there is reason to believe they were quite contented with this in, in general, in general. So I don't want to paint a picture of a sort of feminist utopia or, or a, or a non-binary utopia. Not at all. That would be misleading. On the other hand, I don't want people to imagine that just because women were supposed to raise the children and men were supposed to be warriors and, and craftsmen, that they had no freedom, uh, that it was repressive in the way that we would think of repression today. One thing I was wondering about, if we could go just back just a little bit, uh, this was a vision that Moctezuma and his counselors had of a well-regulated body politic that uh, was the product of generations of Nahuatl tradition. And it, 
in, in the book you talk about a cellular principle. And so that, that's part of the stability. It's not just the polygonous marriages, but also there was this sense of, of um, I guess, the parts as, as they fit into the whole. That is absolutely right. Um, th that the language or the, the image of a cellular principle was not mine, not my invention. It was a great historian named James Lockhart, who passed away only a few years ago, uh, who described Nahuatl society that way. All society was cellular, that is, there would be tasks that were divided up and given to different subgroups of people and they would be rotated. Even the chieftainship in some towns was rotated. The Aztecs did not rotate the, 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 the role of being emperor, um, but lower governing functions were uh, divvied up, passed around and then rotated. So in, in any one year, your neighborhood, your carpoli might be asked to clean the harbor or to clean the pyramid, you would be given different roles and these would be continuously passed around. Likewise, the way they talked in their poetry or their songs was about the importance of everyone. Uh, yes, men had to go to war and yes, women had to have babies, but it wasn't as though these things were used to insult each other. That is, no one said, oh, you're just a woman because you stay home and take care of the children. It was understood that it was incredibly important to have someone raise the next generation, provide the food today, tomorrow, etc. And certainly no one uh, belitt belittled the role of a warrior. So people understood that it takes all kind. And in their poetry, they even would talk about a body politic. They, they used the image of a body of a bird and of course, the, the chief was the head of the bird, but the people were the wings. Uh, the people were what kept that bird uh, aloft, if you will. So there was an understanding that it takes all types of people and all social roles to keep the world going around and that all are valuable. At no point in what I've read have I come across any text that would argue for instance, that the nobles were more valuable as human beings. If anything, they were held to even tighter standards. They had to comply with society's expectations of them, etc. So it's a very unusual world by our standards in that roles are assigned to you. You can't just grow up to be whatever you want to be. There's no free to be you and me. On the other hand, there was real mutual respect amongst all these different groups, a, a real understanding that it, it took all kinds to make a world. So it sounds like the Aztecs had some um, idea of how to make for a cohesive society, at least among themselves. So it may, maybe not so much with the subjugated peoples, of course, uh, but there was a kind of I ideal. There absolutely was. You know, it's funny what you just alluded to it sometimes made me think of, of uh, Amsterdam and the Dutch. That is, when you look within their society in the 17th century, they were extremely egalitarian. They believed that different people should allowed to be Christians in different ways. Girls were expected to learn to read as just as well as the sons of the family. But those same Dutch people were among the worst slavers on the African coast. Okay. Um, and so likewise, the Aztecs really did have a kind of ideal community believing in the equal worth of all. But you're right, they were talking about their community. Others were welcome to join it on the Aztecs terms by the end when the Aztecs had that much power. And those who fought back were sometimes crushed. Uh, there was no discussion of respect for our enemies in that sense. 
So a little bit analogous to the uh, Athenians, you know, to Athens. You know, they had this wonderful democratic society, you know, within themselves, but uh, forget it for the other peoples. Yeah, that's a great example. I hadn't thought of that, but yes, my son is a classicist. I should have thought of that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I think with the time remaining, I think we we would be amiss to leave out uh, Malinche, also known as, as Marina and Malinsin, I think there's probably a lot to be learned about indigenous culture just through this one person who was so such a bridge between the indigenous, or as you put it, between the indigenous and the newcomers. That was a very very neutral way of describing the Spaniards. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she and her life are kind of wonderfully illuminating examples. I guess I could say of a, of a typical person. That is, she was amongst the her her forebears, her ancestors were amongst the the Nahuatl conquerors of the of the region around Veracruz, but they had been there for generations. So even though she grew up in a palace, if you will, a tecpan, she considered herself one of those people. That is not an Aztec, but one of the people of the coast. And in fact, those people were threatened by the Aztecs with conquest when she was a little girl. And in that commotion, she was enslaved as often happened before, during, and after wars. Okay? And she ends up getting sold to the Mayas. So that by the time she's given to the Spaniards, she speaks multiple languages. She's lost all freedom. She's probably been raped. And uh, she then agrees to Cortez's terms when he offers her her freedom if she will translate for him because she speaks Nahuatl and Maya and the Spaniards have amongst them um, a Spaniard who speaks some Mayan. So she's an example of the fate that awaited women uh, in times of war. She's an example of the constraining choices they faced uh, when the Spaniards arrived. She's an example of of what it took to survive in this very polyglot world that was Mesoamerica. She's an example of the ways in which indigenous people proved to be very savvy negotiators, brilliant, uh, self-reliant, we should by no means be condescending to them. And she's an example of the tragedy, one could argue. I mean, she dies very young because the Spaniards do bring smallpox with them. We don't think she died of smallpox. We think she died of something else, but it was definitely during one of the periods of disease. Yeah, I've, I've read that smallpox is only the worst of the diseases that the Europeans brought. That is exactly right. And it was the onslaught of multiple ones that really caused the problem because when you, you get weakened by one microbe and then the other one gets you the next week. Yeah. And you get a sense of, of her dignity in your book and, and, and also just how what an important pivotal figure she was for the, the conquest. And, and also you address the question of what, was she a traitor, which is, I guess, a familiar kind of description in, among, I think, among Mexicans, I think. But you explain that, that uh, you know, it's not as if there was one unified people to betray. You know, there was multiple, multiple peoples that were vying for control and power and to rise out of their oppression. The, the Aztecs were her people's declared enemies. It was because of their approach to her region that she had been enslaved. So she had no reason to be loyal to Montezuma. Um, and I think once Mexicans understand that, and many of them do, they stop calling her a traitor. It's all based on the misunderstanding that she was herself an Aztec. Right. But I, I think that maybe the other aspect of it is that she did go on to have a child with Cortez. 
Right. And so that, that makes her the, the mother of the mestizo people, symbolically. Right. And, and many do not like that. But she would have had no choice in that matter. I mean, the idea that it would have been up to her whether she had sex with Cortez is literally laughable to those of us who know much about the, the 16th century. Europeans in the 16th century were, were not in the habit of asking women that they took in war whether they consented. <laughs> that, that just was not a thing. <laughs> so it really... Uh, it's unfair to her to say that it that she should or could in any way be assumed to have chosen a relationship with him. And then uh, I guess post-conquest, the situation with the Spaniards was kind of like the situation that it had been between the Aztecs and the surrounding peoples, but on steroids in terms of extracting not just tribute, but just enormous resources that then went back to Spain. That's exactly right. The Spaniards kept saying, we're only doing what Montezuma did. At least we're not taking your kids and sacrificing them. And what the, the Mexica and the other Mesoamerican people kept saying is, no, 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 you're not doing just what the Spaniards did. You're taking much more from us. The, the Aztecs had a very good handle on the situation. They knew what a certain village's surplus could be and what it couldn't be. And they were not in the habit of trying to extract more than was extractable because they didn't want the whole polity to collapse. Uh, but the Spaniards didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, they were quite greedy. I mean, they were there as conquerors and they demanded levels of tribute that were far in excess of what the people were used to paying. And historians have studied this in the colonial era. You can watch the poverty grow generation by generation. At first, the people use resources that they have amassed to pay what the Spaniards demand, but pretty soon um, it, they're having to take from their children's mouths, so to speak, what they have to turn over to the Spaniards. It's quite sad to watch. And, and you're right that yet even then they were not destroyed, but rather maintained their balance. Like so many people in other times and places, they had to learn to make peace with their new reality so they would not go mad. Uh, some people have said I put it a little strongly there, um, but I'm not sure that I did. I mean. Mesoamerica had been a land of conflict, yes, but also of great power and dignity. And they, over time, region by region, had to come to accept Spanish dominance. They had to come to accept that their material resources were going to be turned over to the Spaniards in ever greater amounts. This doesn't mean that the Spaniards destroyed their culture or their psyches, not at all. But we should separate out psychological and cultural mechanisms of self-defense from the fact that the Spaniards were in political and economic control and were able to dominate them, these other people. And that had to be extremely painful. We know that it was from some of the things that they occasionally wrote. They didn't write much. The Nahuas didn't write much about the pain they experienced, but they did sometimes. And they did find it very hard to come to terms with the fact that they had been conquered. And, and the situation today in Mexico, if I'm not mistaken, that the, most of the population is mestizo now, and, and uh, depending on the region. And that must make it very difficult to maintain one's culture, I would think. Exactly. There are some regions and some towns that are still largely indigenous, and those are the places where Nahuatl or Mayan language, for instance, is still spoken. But most of Mexico is very mestizo, meaning mixed heritage, Spanish and indigenous, but of course, Spanish being the language that is in common parlance. Um, so yes, gradually, even the culture has been eroded, or the cultures. 
Right, and then you make the point that uh, ironically it was after the Mexican Revolution that Spanish became even more dominant as the language. Yeah, it, it is it is rather tragic that after the independence wars, when the Spaniards were first kicked out, was when the indigenous languages first took a real hit because the Spanish crown had been in the habit of allowing indigenous people to come to court and speak in their own language. There were always official translators available. It was really kind of a multicultural society. That went out the window with independence. And then ironically, after the Mexican Revolution and the, the beginning of the 20th century, changing economic forces really pulled uh, people of the villages into the, shall we call it the international economic order. Uh, so that today, as I mentioned at the start of the interview, even the fact that we have 1.5 million Nahuatl speakers uh, is under threat. Uh, so as more and more of those villagers who speak Nahuatl leave, you know, grow up and uh, move either to Mexico City or some other city or even to the United States. So. So this is probably the last question or topic, and that's about religion. Of course, the Spaniards imposed Christianity on, on the natives and expected them to, to convert and renounce their previous gods. But in fact, it seems that that didn't quite happen that way, that beca you know, given that it was a, a, a religion of, of many gods, then they could just add, <laughs> add other gods. Or in some cases, they were able to transform Christian deities or quasi-deities into their own. So um, Mary became Guadalupe and uh, th that became emphasized. And I've read elsewhere that Guadalupe is emphasized as the kind of figure of compassion and consolation, which they would need a lot of at that point. They would need a lot of, right. And you're absolutely right to bring this up. In the middle of the 20th century, historians used to talk about the spiritual conquest, quote unquote, and they were assuming that the indigenous people had just given up their religion and been sort of overwhelmed by Christian ideals and Christianity. And they believed this because the friars would say, today I baptized 400 people, today I baptized 600 people. We now have, you know, X number of thousands of Christians in my district. But that is just taking at face value what the friars said, they were actually going out into crowds of people and sprinkling water over a lot of them and saying some prayers. That didn't mean that inside the head of every person who was touched by a little bit of this water, uh, that Christianity had been deeply imbibed um, or that they were taking it seriously. And in fact, when we read what they wrote in their own writings, they'll say things like, we didn't understand it at that time. They made us go every seven days to this place where they gesticulate. They say where we saw, not heard, but where we saw them do Misa, Mass. Okay? But we didn't understand it. Um, sometimes they even complained that even when the men, the friars, the elders, the Spanish elders were trying to explain things to them, they didn't speak Nahuatl very well and we couldn't understand what they were saying. So we have not implicit proof, but direct proof that the indigenous at that time were far from Christian uh, and they were keeping their multiple wives on the side, etc. But I will say little by little, generation by generation, that did come to change. You see some remnants of it in 17th century Nahuatl writings where they'll put things in a certain way that's rather odd and you think, you, you can see that they're being affected by older Nahuatl ways of thinking about things. But by the 18th and 19th centuries, I would say these people have become fully Christian in in every sense of the word. Right, right in, including the indigenous regions, I would imagine. Yes, right. Now there, it's a little complicated because when you go and see the way that they practice their, their Catholic faith, you notice images and ceremonies that go way back. That, so they have incorporated indigenous 
sort of aesthetics into their Catholic uh, processions, etc. But they are truly Catholic, nevertheless. Well, Camilla, I think that we've run out of time. So uh, Camilla Townsend, a distinguished professor of history at Rutgers University, whose scholarship focuses on indigenous peoples throughout the Americas, and who is deeply immersed in the study of Nahuatl, the Aztec language. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Really a pleasure having you. Oh, thank you so much. It's really been a joy for me. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.